Well, good morning. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. I prepared this sermon with a new year in mind, and I thought that there's probably no better place to start the year than taking a look at God Himself. As we look at Isaiah chapter 6, we see a glimpse of God, Isaiah's vision of God as he's called to the ministry, to his ministry. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Lord, we just thank you that you make your glory known. Lord, you are holy. You are worthy of worship. I thank you for the gift of music, the gift of worship. I just thank you for the talents that you have given So many of us here at the church, the voices that sing your praise. Lord, be with us as we study your word. Teach us your truth this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah's vision. He begins, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I think we see that it begins with an encounter with God. We start, Isaiah chapter 6, an encounter with God. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We're not going to turn there, but if you go to John chapter 12, he talks, he references this passage. And what he tells us is what Isaiah is seeing, he's actually seeing the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus himself. I think it's important to note because we see that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And as others saw him before, Isaiah sees Christ. He sees the glory of Christ. We can assume that he's not seeing him literally face to face because we also know from the text that that wouldn't go well for any human. But we see uh, he sees a vision of his glory. He is there seated at the throne of God. And that's where he goes to next. He says he is king. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. It's interesting the timing of this vision. You see, King Uzziah had just died. King Uzziah was pretty much a good king. He reigned over Judah a little before 700 B.C., and typically he's remembered as a good king. However, it's a little bit ironic because King Uzziah, his fatal flaw was pride. He did very well for himself. He was an innovator in war and an innovator in farming. He, the kingdom flourished under him. But he got a little too big for his britches, as it were, and he decided that he was worthy to walk into the throne room of God. But as he did that, he was struck with leprosy for the rest of his life. The remembrance of King Uzziah is not that he was a great king in, in Scripture. If you go back to Second Chronicles chapter 26, you see he had leprosy. That's how he's remembered. There's an, a, uh, remains that were dug up um, that some people think may be King Uzziah's bones. It said, here lie King Uzziah's bones. Do not open. That's his legacy. Left with leprosy because he thought he was worthy of entering the throne room of God. But King Uzziah died. And what happened when King Uzziah died was the nation of Israel was uh, probably captivated by fear, anxiety, not knowing what's next. The first five chapters of Isaiah is woe to you, talking to the inhabitants of the land. God's judgment is coming to Israel and Judah. I'm sure Isaiah was a little worried. I think it's significant that God brings him to the foot of the throne. 
the message that he's teaching Isaiah, the message that he tells us this morning is that I am king. I am sovereign. I am in charge and I am in control. The king might be dead, but I am the king of kings and Lord of lords. As we walk through these things, we're seeing different attributes of God, different characteristics of God. And as Isaiah sees these things, I want us to think about how we see God, how we view God. It's important that we understand that what Isaiah is is seeing is teachable for us. So we know that he's looking at Jesus. We know that he is king. He continues. He's sitting upon a throne. He is high and lifted up. We learn that God is exalted. He is above everything. He is transcendent. He's the creator and sustainer of all life. When we say that he's transcendent, we don't only mean that he's high, but we also mean that he is not dependent on anything else. He is independent. All of creation relies on God, but God relies on nothing but himself. This also applies to God's thoughts and his ways. Isaiah later in Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah catches a glimpse of this exalted glory. He is high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. Well, he also continues in verse 1, The train of his robe filled the temple. This word train is actually just talking about the hem of his garment. He's sitting at the bottom of the throne. The glory is filling the temple, and it can't even contain the hem of his garment. This is how wonderful, how majestic, how glorious God is. It can't be contained. The temple was built to God's specifications, yet it could only hold the hem of his garment. We know of God's glory as he has revealed it to us, but we can't fully comprehend how great, how powerful, how majestic he is. When I think about this concept, it brings me back actually to the arch. Coming in, you see the arch. You know it's big. Look at that structure. I don't know how they made that thing, especially 50 years ago. But it's one thing to see it from afar. But as many of you know, when you go down there and you stand at the foot of the arch, you look up and you're like, wow, this is actually really, really big. It's bigger than I thought driving by the highway. When I'm standing under it, when I'm looking up, I'm just like, wow, that is a massive structure. In a small way, a tiny fraction of the way, that's what Isaiah is experiencing here. He's like, I know God is glorious. And then he sits there at the bottom of the throne and he looks up and he sees the hem of the garment filling everything. God's glory is everywhere. He can't escape it. We should remember that the God we serve, the God that Isaiah sees, the God that loves us, is glorious. He's great. He's uncontainable. Isaiah stood and looked at the glory of Christ and he was overwhelmed by his majesty. Our response to God should be overwhelmed at His glory. He continues in verse 2. We learn that God is holy, what we just sung about. Above Him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Notice the posture of the angels. Two wings covered their feet. Two wings covered their face. Two used for service. These were created beings. They weren't sinful. Yet they still understood that God is holy. He is separate. He is distinct from all of his creation. Even these sinless, perfect beings approach God with reverence. Their job, their duty, their created purpose was to revere and worship God. And that's what we see in verse 3, the evidence of his holiness. He is worthy of worship. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the proper response to God's holiness. True worship. This phrase, holy, 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 has a fancy name. It's called the trihagion. I don't know where that comes from. It comes from the Hebrew, hagion, holy, and there's three of them, tri. But there's significance here because this is the only phrase that's repeated three times, I think, that describes God. And I think why that is is because this describes all of God's essence. We can't know it fully. He's separate. He's distinct. He's special. He's unique. It serves a dual purpose. Believe holy, holy, holy speaks to the sincerity, the passion, the confidence of our worship. As the angels praise God, they know who they worship. But I think it also verifies the triune nature of our God. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all holy and all worthy of our worship. We see again the vision in Revelation chapter 4. We see the same picture. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God will be worshipped for all eternity. He is being worshipped right now. How are we responding to God? The proper response to God's holiness is worship. But we also see one more thing in verse 4 about in this encounter with God. He is awesome. Awesome is a biblical word. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I think we're given a glimpse of the sheer power of God as he calls, as the seraphim say, cry out, holy, 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 the temple shakes, the house is full of smoke. I think it's this idea of God is so big, so majestic, so glorious, so holy, that we stand in awe. We stand in fear, a reverential fear, knowing who God is. Just getting a glimpse of him causes us to stand, to pause. In all. That's Isaiah's encounter, his first vision of the Lord. Some of you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? Tozer says this What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
I would agree. We need to see God the way that He is described in Scripture. Because I don't believe we can begin to live the life that God intends for us if we don't really understand or know who God is. And if we will take time to see God, to seek Him in the Scriptures, I think we'll find that He's much bigger and much greater than we even give Him credit for. The simple question is, how big is your God? How big is the God that you worship? Because when we read Scripture, we find that He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. We find that He is eternal. He's infinite. And He's unchanging. He is everywhere, in all places, at all times. He is self-existent and self-sufficient in all things are upheld by Him. He is just, merciful, kind, and true. He's God who loves jealously, who fights fiercely, and who judges perfectly. He's never seen a problem He couldn't solve, a situation He couldn't handle, or a person He couldn't love. He is a God who blesses beyond measure, who forgives without question and reconciles sinful man unto himself. And this is just a glimpse of who God is. So what happens? What happens when we encounter this God like Isaiah did? I've heard a a preacher illustrate it like this. Say I just come busting in the doors. I'm running late. I get up here. You're wondering, doesn't this guy know what's going on? He gets the privilege of standing up in the pulpit and he doesn't even take it seriously. And I come up here and I say, I'm sorry, but let me tell you. I was on the way here and on the highway, I got a flat tire. And so I was out on the, on the side of the road. I had to change my tire. I'm lifting it up, taking the tire off. I had the lug nut in my hand and it rolled out. I dropped it. It rolled out right into the middle of the street. And so not really thinking, I just ran out into the street. I picked it up. But as I got up, I stood up and I looked. And here in front of me was a 30-ton logging truck. It was going 125 miles an hour. And it was five feet in front of me. It hit me. And that's why I was late. (laughs) Now, there's two logical conclusions that you could come to. Number one, either I'm a liar. Or number two, I'm crazy. Why? Because it would be crazy to think that I could get hit by a 30-ton logging truck going 125 miles an hour five minutes ago and still look the same and not be changed. And so the question is, which is bigger, a 30-ton logging truck or God? You see, you can't encounter God without expecting change. And you might say, yeah, but Isaiah is seeing God, and and I don't see God. You're right. I don't think we're going to get this kind of vision. But you know, 2 Peter tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy in the Scriptures. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, it's better, it's good for you that I go. Why? So that I will send the Comforter, the Helper to you. 
We have the sure word of Scripture that describes in detail, gives us a vision, a glimpse of who God is. We have the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts, testifying to who God is. That's how we see God. That's how we experience God. You see, Isaiah begins with this vision of God. But it doesn't stop there. We see that Isaiah is changed. I just want to show you two changes that happened to Isaiah after this encounter, during this vision of the Lord. I think we all can learn from these two changes this morning. The first is a change in position. Look at verse 5 with me. We see Isaiah in a posture of humility. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognized God's holiness, and his response was, woe. Woe is me, I am unclean, and I'm in the midst of an unclean people. I'm in trouble. You see, recognizing God's holiness immediately reveals our unworthiness. Immediately reveals our own sinfulness. The question is, do you know God's holiness? If you know God's holiness, how do you feel about sin? Because if we truly know God's holiness, then we run from sin. Then we confess sin. We get away from it because we know that God is holy. I'm afraid many of us have a lackadaisical view of sin. And I would say a lackadaisical view of sin leads to a lackadaisical view of God. And God is anything but lackadaisical. A serious view of God requires a serious view of sin. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. An encounter with God will bring you face to face with your sin. What will we do with our sin? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to wallow in our sin. He doesn't leave us in misery. Look at verse 6 and 7. We see that Isaiah is a recipient of God's mercy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's posture of humility allowed God to work. Isaiah didn't earn forgiveness. He didn't do anything to gain it. God gave it. Out of his graciousness and his mercy, forgive him. Why? And your sin atone for. Here we see that the only way to satisfy payment for sin is through sacrifice. And it's interesting, if you remember, we're seeing the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself. Forgive him, knowing he will be the sacrifice, knowing that Christ is the payment for our sins. Just as the sins of Isaiah were forgiven, our sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. 
Again, in 1 John chapter 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a remedy for sin. It's forgiveness through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. Forgiveness prepares us for service. Look at verse 8 with me. Isaiah becomes a hearer of God's call. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You see, Isaiah started as a man of humility, recognizing his sinfulness. He was distraught. (laughs) He receives God's forgiveness and grace. And now he hears a call. When I say the same is true for us, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand, that we should walk in them. Have you considered what God might have you to do? God chooses to use believers, to use men and women to accomplish His plan and purpose. It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that's the beginning. What are you going to do with a call of God? Brings us to our second change, a change in direction. Isaiah's response, the end of verse 8, Then I said, Here I am, send me. It's important that this comes first. God said, who will we send? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. He didn't ask for a job description. He didn't ask about the salary or benefits package. He didn't ask where he was going to have to go or what he was going to have to do. He said, here I am, send me. What caused him to do that? The mercy and grace of Jesus. His confidence was in God. It didn't matter where he was going to go or what he was going to do because he knew if God be for me, who can be against me? He knew that this God who created me, who loved me, who forgave me, I will do anything gladly for him. Here I am. Send me. God's grace is the motivation for our obedience. Nothing else. Not guilt, not shame, not making your mom happy. God's grace and mercy. It's his view of God that gave him confidence and assurance that he would be with him wherever he went. Which is a good thing. Because in the next few verses, we see a difficult calling. Look at verses 9 through 12 with me. And he said, God says to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear it with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. That's a difficult call. 
That's a difficult job description. Isaiah had already signed up. Tells me that knowing Jesus, following Jesus, it doesn't guarantee an easy life. It doesn't guarantee that everything's going to go right. It might actually make things harder. You might be called to do something you thought you could never do. You might be asked to go somewhere you thought you would never go. A difficult calling didn't change Isaiah's obedience. He was content to go because he knew that was what God had for him. Isaiah was confronted with the truth. It's not going to go well. It's going to be bad. There's going to be a lot of suffering. But I think Isaiah knew God's promise. That even though God was bringing his discipline, it didn't negate his promise. And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And so we come to verse 13. What we find is an unlikely plan. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And here we see the truth of God's discipline coming down on Israel, coming down on Judah. But it doesn't negate the promise. There's a holy seed. It's its stump. God was faithful. God knew there would be a remnant. And we read about the remnant in chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots should bear fruit. Who's that shoot but Jesus? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, faithfulness the belt of his loins. God's plan from eternity past was that there would be a remnant, that there would be a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, the father of David. His name is Jesus, who we just celebrated his birth this past week. Knowing that God is faithful, knowing that he has a plan that maybe we don't know or can't understand or wouldn't do it that way if we were God. Knowing that he is faithful, should motivate us to follow his plan, even in the face of difficult circumstances. My challenge for you this morning is to consider expanding your view of God. My hopes that you will see him more clearly, that you will know him more intimately, and that you will follow him more deeply. Don't let God become familiar. This vision was anything but familiar. Don't let church become routine. Don't gloss over worship. In 2016, seek God. Because when you seek God, 
When you see God, the God that is revealed in Scripture, a God who is king, a God who is exalted, majestic, holy, worthy of our worship and awesome, it changes us from the inside out. We can't help but be changed. And it starts by recognizing our sin, by receiving God's mercy. It continues with obedience. And it results in a life that is ever increasing in love, in joy, and in peace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you acknowledging your holiness. That you are worthy of our praise. That you are sovereign. That you are Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Yet you love us. Yet you sent your Son to die for us. That we might come to know you. Lord, I pray if there are any here in this room who have not received your mercy, who do not know you, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would cry out to you if we would only confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, we might be saved. Lord, help us see you. Help us love you well. Help us have a desire to know you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.